Paul is writing to Christians living in the ancient city of Philippi. And he is writing to them because they are discouraged. They are being persecuted for their faith. And Paul is writing to encourage them. What's interesting is that he's not sitting in his office writing this letter. He's not sitting on the deck of his beach house in Florida. He is writing from prison. So from the perspective of suffering, he writes to encourage those who are suffering as well. And this is what he says to them. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father verse 5 again it's just amazing Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. I'd like to share with you a message that we're going to finish next week, simply entitled, Think Like Jesus. Think like Jesus, thinking like Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thought, that we have been called to think like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Father, glorify your name in all that is said today. In Jesus' name, and all of God's children said, Amen and Amen. One more time, give the Lord praise in His house here this morning. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' name. You know, it's very hard to believe that in just five weeks we will be celebrating Easter. Five weeks from now. And um, naturally... All across this country and in fact all around this uh, global community, believers naturally begin to shift their focus to the cross, to the empty tomb and to the upper room where Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on the disciples that had gathered there per his command. Uh, If you are newer to the faith, Um, And especially if you are newer to Bethel, you may have never thought of including the upper room where, again, the Holy Spirit was poured out in the Easter narrative. And yet I've come to believe in my heart that you must include it in the Easter story in order for redemption in every facet of life to be fully appreciated and understood. And through the years, I've done my best to move all of us in that direction to the place where whenever you think of Easter, you're not just thinking of the cross and the empty tomb, but you're also thinking of 
the upper room, again, where the Holy Spirit was poured out. Because if you study out Scripture, you realize that it is upon those three pillars that the church is actually built. It's so easy at Easter just to consider the cross and the empty tomb with no consideration of the upper room. And yet, the whole Easter narrative would be incomplete without talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that occurred in the upper room and gave birth to the church. You see, it is through the cross that a provision was made that you and I might be righteously forgiven. It is through the resurrection that Jesus was vindicated, but we were also proclaimed justified. And it is through the Holy Spirit that we are energized to live this life of salvation. And so if you leave out the Holy Spirit, then you are left with forgiveness, but no power to live in a transformed life by the power of God. So they all work together. As you can probably tell, I love this time of the year. I get excited as we get closer to Easter, and I especially love the opportunity it affords me to speak on the atonement or the covering um, for our sin, the provision that God has made for us that our sins might be forgiven and that we might grow in our relationship with the Lord. And I, I guess that it's really been over the last 19 years specifically that I have gained a greater appreciation for the atonement and for the sacrificial death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the reason is because... So little thought, relatively speaking, is actually put into understanding what happened upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Very flippantly, we as Christians will say, Jesus died for our sin. And that is the extent of our knowledge of the cross. And even though that is true, can I tell you, it's much more than that. It is, it is more than just Jesus dying for our sin. It's what is behind that. It is, it is going deeper than that. And very few Christians really grasp the depths of the wisdom of God that are revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the Apostle Paul who said, we preach Christ crucified both the power of God and the wisdom of God. And many of us as Christians will celebrate the power of God that is seen in the cross with no consideration of the wisdom of God that was actually poured out upon the cross. Because what you're seeing on the cross is God dealing wisely with the problems that always emerge whenever you offer free forgiveness to those who have transgressed the law of God. And if you're a parent, you understand that whenever you forgive your children, you do so with great trepidation because you realize that if you always forgive your children and there's no punishment, you make them worse in the end. And so what you're actually seeing on the cross is God dealing justly with the problems that always emerge when you offer free forgiveness to guilty men and women. Jesus was not letting us off the hook. God gave His Son so that we could be justly forgiven of our sin. 
And there's so few people that ever consider these things. And I believe the evidence of that is all around. I believe that's where the lack of passion stems from. The inability to live with any traction or any momentum in our walk with God is the direct result of the very little consideration that we actually give to the cross and all that it truly means for the believer. Now, I'd love to go down that road with you today. I really would. But i got to be honest. This year, as I have meditated upon the Easter season and all that it means to me, I've spent a better time considering the empty tomb and the cross and the upper room, not only with regards to their redemptive implications, but also their progressive implications. What does that mean? Well, it just means that there comes a point in the life of every growing and every passionate believer in Jesus Christ where the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit cease to be seen only as the plan of salvation, but are also viewed as the path of discipleship. Where these things are not only about our redemption and the opportunity that we have to be redeemed by Christ through them, but they're also about our transformation. That the cross, the empty tomb, and the upper room are not just about me being saved, but they actually are the life that I have been called to live. That I have been, li- that I have been called to live a crucified life, a resurrected life, and a powerful life through the Holy Spirit of the living God Almighty. Now listen, I, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. The primary reason that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, sent us the Holy Spirit, is that we might be saved, that we might be justified, that we might be righteously and justly forgiven of our sin. Because it is not right, it is not just to forgive guilty men and women. When, when, uh, when judges forgive guilty people, they get fired. We don't hire judges to let guilty people go free. It is unjust to forgive the guilty unless you come up with a substitute for the penalty that will have the same impact upon the lives of men and women. And that's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was being offered as a substitute for you and I so that God might be faithful and just to forgiving of us of our sin and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And I thank God for salvation. Can somebody give God praise for salvation in Christ alone? But you can't stop there as a growing believer. Because all throughout the scriptures, believers are commanded to and are expected to not only look to the cross, but to take up their cross. They are commanded not to just believe in the resurrection, but to themselves be resurrected by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead and to live in the newness of life. You see, the cross, the empty tomb, and the upper room are not only laying out for us the plan of salvation, but the pattern of discipleship. They they are to be the way we now live our lives. And for those that may struggle with that whole concept, may I remind you that it was Jesus himself that first introduced us to this concept. Because in Luke chapter 9, when Jesus was asked about the cost of discipleship, 
He said to them in verse 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said, yes, I'm going to die on the cross for your salvation, but make no mistake about it. If after that you are going to follow me, you are going to spend a lifetime daily taking up your cross spiritually and dying to yourself so that you may be risen with me. In Jesus' name. Many years later, the Apostle Paul would actually pick up on that And would expound upon it throughout most of his letters in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 6 he says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And isn't it interesting that question is still being asked in 2019? Because in the United States of America there are pulpits that are literally saying don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about living a godly life because even when you sin, grace abounds. So don't worry about amending your lifestyle. Don't worry about conforming to the image of Christ because where sin abounds, grace does much abound. And that was what happening in the first century church. He says, what shall we say? Are we to continue sinning so that grace may abound? Certainly not. He says this. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? What does he mean by that? How did we die to sin? He explains it later. He says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. The old man is talking about the old way that we used to live before Jesus came. He's talking about the old way we made our choices. The old way we made our decisions. The old way that we behave. He's saying that old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So what Paul is saying is, yes, we turn to the cross and we turn to the empty tomb and we turn to the upper room to remember that a provision was made for us to be saved. But as a disciple of Christ, it's more than just the means by which you are saved. It is now the path that you live. Because you died with Christ on the cross. That old way of living was done away with so that you would no longer be slaves of sin because now you have shared in his resurrection greater is he that is living in you than he that is in this world in Jesus mighty name in the book of Galatians he just runs with this Galatians 2 and verse 20 Paul says I have been crucified with Christ it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me the life which I now live in the flesh, in this flesh and blood body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How many of you are glad that he loved you and gave his life for you? But it's more than just being saved. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have identified with his crucified life to the point where it's no longer I that lives, but it's actually Christ that lives in me. I went to Christ one day and I never came back because it's now Jesus who lives in me in Jesus name 
In Galatians 5 and verse 24, he says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. I should say here that whenever the Bible talks about, um, in some cases, our flesh, because we just talked about uh, the life I now live in the flesh, there he's talking about the flesh and blood body. But here when he says that they have crucified the flesh, he's not talking about the flesh and blood body. He is talking about our passions and our desires. What he's talking about there is our attractions, what feels good, what seems right. He's talking about our appetites and what satisfies us, what gratifies us, what makes us happy, what makes us feel fulfilled. He says that's how the old man lived. The old man woke up every day and said, what satisfies me? What gratifies me? What is it that satisfies my life? That is how our choices and our decisions were made. But when we met Christ, we were to have crucified all of those desires to now live intelligently, which is to live for the glory and the honor of Almighty God. And uh, again in Galatians chapter 6, he says this, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And then I love this one in Romans 8 and verse number 11. He says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And it should be noted here that when he talks about resurrection here, he is not talking about the future resurrection of the dead in Christ that all who have believed upon the Lord for all the centuries will experience. He's not talking about that resurrection. He's actually talking about a personal daily resurrection that you and I can experience as believers as the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead quickens our mortal body to do as God has called us to do in Jesus mighty name so really I mean think about it as you consider these verses you understand that for the believer Easter is not something we celebrate once a year Easter is not even something we celebrate once a week because the whole reason we worship on Sunday rather than on Saturday as they did in the Old Testament is because Jesus walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and so the church even shifted its day of worship to reflect that we serve a risen Savior. So every Sunday is an Easter Sunday for the believer in Jesus' name. But it's not just something we celebrate once a year or something that we celebrate once a week. It is something that we celebrate every day because every day we are to die to ourselves, so that the Holy Spirit will resurrect us to walk in the newness of life in Jesus' name. Every day is Easter for the child of God in Jesus' name. Come on, somebody, give God the praise if you believe that. So Easter is not only a time of reflection upon the precious salvation that we have found through Jesus Christ and his death, his resurrection, the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, but it's also a time for us to reflect upon our progress. To actually focus upon our development as disciples of Christ. Am I daily becoming more like Jesus? When people listen to me, 
when they watch me interact with my children, when they watch me interact with my spouse, when they see me at work, can they say, it is no longer they that lives, but it's Christ who lives in them? That I am seen reflected in their choices and their decisions and the way that they speak the life of Christ. So I thank God for salvation. But I thank God that all of these events show me how I am now to conduct my life. A crucified life, a resurrected life, and a life full of the Spirit of God. I love the way you're shouting now. Where does that all begin? Because I'm not going to start there. Where does all of this begin? Where does that journey, if you will, start? Because if we're talking about this being a, a, a journey, a path that we are on, where does it begin? Well, our text actually tell, tells us where it began with Christ, and that is his mind. Verse 5 again says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind that was in Christ Jesus was obviously there before he ever entered into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. That mind was already in him before he went to the cross. So what we can actually gather from his life is that that issue had already been settled in his heart. Long before he ever got to the cross, he had already lived with a crucified mind. He'd already had a mindset that had prepared him for everything he was going to endure in that season of his life. And that is what we are commanded to do as well. You cannot just show up to the test and hope you make it. You have got to spend a lifetime preparing your mind for that moment in Jesus' mighty name. And so if you will, this morning, I just want to break down that first verse there, verse 5, very quickly with you. And I want to begin with the first word, let. Turn to your neighbor and say, let. You're saying, Pastor Kurt, you're going to take a few moments to talk about one word. Yes, I am. And if any of you have ever been with me on a Wednesday night Bible study, you know I can take one word and run with it for an hour. I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. And this week, as I was meditating on this portion of Scripture, I could not get away from that word, let. Now, other translations, they use the word have, and that would be proper. You could say, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. But I've always been partial to the King James and to the old, uh, the, the New King James version that uses the word let. And again, they basically mean the same thing. But for me, the word let just is a better description. It, it, it's, a, it's a more graphic word because when I think of letting anything happen, I think of yielding. I think of surrender. When I think of letting, I think of an allowance that is being made. For instance, if I let you merge into my lane, I am yielding to you and I'm allowing you to get in ahead of me. If I let you have your way, I am yielding to you and I'm allowing you to have your way. If I 
let you lead, what am I doing? I am yielding to you and I'm allowing you to lead the way. I mean, that just is how I think of that word let. It's that sense of yielding to you because at that moment, you're going to love this. I am preferring what you want over what I want. And I am allowing you to have your way. And I love that word let because it reminds us of our relationship with God. Can I tell you today, God will never force you to do anything. God will never force you to conform to the image of His Son. Require you? Yes. Force you? No. He will never force you to conform to the image of His Son. You have to yield to Him and allow Him by His Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. You let Him have His way within you. You you have to partner with Him in the understanding that, Lord, I am preferring your will over my own will, and however you want to shape or form or mold me, that's okay. I submit myself to you. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You let the Lord have his way. You yield to his spirit by letting him have his way. Have you ever considered how many times that is repeated throughout the New Testament? Jesus himself said it in John 14 and verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. He repeats it twice in Colossians 3. Where he says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. And I'll just stop there. What I love about those verses is it just again confirms the fact that God, though all-powerful, is not going to force anything against your will. He's not going to make your heart not be troubled. He's not going to make your heart not be afraid. He wants you to let His peace rule over your heart and life. He is not going to make you dismiss your wrath. He just tells you, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He's not going to make His peace rule in your heart. You have to let His peace rule in your heart. He's not going to make His Word dwell in you richly. He wants you to let His Word dwell in you richly and give you all wisdom for the days ahead in Jesus' name. And so God is not going to force Himself in any way. In fact, even as we were worshiping, you know, here a few moments ago, I heard it being said, move among us, move among us. And I hear God saying, I want to, let me. See, we got to change the way we pray. We got to change, because a lot of you are praying, Lord, change my heart. God's like, what? I want to change your heart. Let me change your heart. Lord, heal my marriage. I want to heal your marriage, but you're in the way. Let me have my way and do what I want to do in you. Come on, everybody. Say amen. Stop praying for God to override your will. Let him have his way in Jesus' name. 
And that comes with his mind as well. He says, let this mind. Let this mind. Now, let's break that one down here quickly. Mind is a, is a great word. Obviously, I think you know he's not talking about your brain. He's talking about your way of thinking. That's the mind. Let this way of thinking. That is one way you could say it. He's not talking about your brain. He's talking about your mindset. He's talking about the way you think. Actually, the word mind in the original language means directing your mind to a thing, a singular thing. As believers, we are to be single-minded. God never designed you to be a multitasker when it comes to your faith. You are to be single-minded. In fact, James said a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You and I as believers are to have one way of thinking. We are to have one thought in our mind. We are directing our minds to that one thing. It also means to strive for or to seek for. So it's your mindset determining your pursuits, what you will seek after, what you will strive after. It actually means to exercise your mind in one direction. It is literally talking about a mindset that you have entertained and you have directed your thoughts in one direction for so long that now your mind is set upon that and it cannot be moved. Whenever I think of that word set, I always go back to my days in construction with my uncle. We did a lot of concrete work. We poured a lot of floors and a lot of foundations. And the one thing that I grew very aware of is how quickly cement will set. When you do cement work, and if any of you have ever done it, you know that once you get going, it is non-stop work because it sets very quickly, relatively speaking. And what you do, you've got to do quickly. You've got to screed it. You've got to trowel it. You've got to smooth it out very quickly because with every passing moment, it's getting stiffer. It is getting harder. And I'm going to tell you, every single day, you've got stuff pouring into your mind. And if you're not working with Jesus and taking care of business, it's going to end up setting your mind in one direction. you got to be careful about that. And as believers, we are told that we are to have one way of thinking. That we are to exercise our mind in one direction. To entertain thoughts that are only consistent with that direction. That we have to direct our minds to the point where our pursuit, our striving, and our seeking is in that one way. Literally, a mindset is, I've entertained that way of thinking for so long, I've trained my mind to go in that one direction. That's why you've got people that are so negative. I mean, have you ever been around negative people, you know? Turning point. <laughs> no, but listen, we, we all have been around negative people. They're, they're, I just saw that the, that the Powerball is up to $500 million. If they won the Powerball, the first thing they would say is, i got to pay taxes. I mean, that's just how they look. Everything is negative toward them. Because they've entertained that way for so long. That's just how they think. Be careful. And for that reason, he doesn't leave it open open-ended, he says, let this mind, he's very specific, not just any way of thinking, 
Let this way of thinking. So now the question is, well, what mind or whose mind is he talking about? What way of thinking? Whose way of thinking is he talking about? He makes it very clear here, which was also in Christ Jesus. Which was also in Christ Jesus. It's not just any way of thinking. It is Christ's way of thinking. You and I as disciples have been called to think the same way Jesus thinks. Can I hear a better amen than that? I mean, that is an awesome, awesome command. We are to think like Jesus. We are to possess the same mind, the same way of thinking, the same mindset of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be quick to point out that that is impossible without divine intervention. You can't think His thoughts without divine intervention. And that's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every single day you live and breathe, there is a war going on for your mind. Every single day, the world is trying to conform you to its image. And the word conform there is carrying the idea of someone trying to push you into a mold and make you like everyone else. And every single day, the world is trying to push you into its mold so that you think the way they think. And we know how the world thinks. Thankfully, Uh, John talked about it in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 2. He says, all that is in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. How does the world think? Whatever feels good, whatever looks good, and whatever makes me about me. Whatever it takes to build me up, that's all that the world thinks. The world wakes up every morning, what looks good, what feels good, and what satisfies me. The pride of life, that's how they make their choices. And so even their quote-unquote compassionate acts are still done with selfish motives and intents. Because I'm only going to show compassion where I feel compassion needs to be shown. When that person is worthy of my compassion, that's why they can save whales but kill live babies. They're making the decision of what is right in themselves. It's the pride of life. And every single day, the world is trying to push you into their mold and make you think that way. But every day, we are to be submitted to the Lord and crucify this flesh so that we may be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the renewing of our way of thinking, which is the will of God. The will of God. What is God's will in this? It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter if it if I enjoy it. It doesn't matter if it makes me happy. What is the will of God? And then I test and I prove all things and hold only to that which is good, acceptable, and perfect in the eyes of Almighty God. That's how we're to think. I love 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now what he's making there is the delineation between Having the mind of God where you can instruct him and having the mind of Christ. What he's saying is, because you have the mind of Christ doesn't mean you know everything that he knows. I know some of you think you do, but 
You don't know what God knows, and you never will. He is the almighty, sovereign God. So he's not talking about you knowing everything that he knows. Again, he's talking about thinking the way Jesus thinks. It's, it's possessing a mindset that is like Christ. So he says, let this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, be in you. Now, I'm just throwing this in for free. This is just a point I want to... You is plural here because he's speaking to an audience. You, okay? But it's also singular. You are part of the you. So I'm talking to you today. For all of you who come to me at the end of the service and say, Pastor, you were preaching to me. I am preaching to you right now. I am. Everybody here thinks I'm talking to them, but I'm talking to you right now. I'm not even going to look at you, so it doesn't make you awkward, but I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to your wife. I'm not talking to your husband. I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking to you. So whoever you want to project this on, please understand it's to you. Nobody else. Now... I'm going to close this because we're going to leave some time to pray. But I just want you to consider these few things. Jesus didn't again just show up to the cross. He had prepared a lifetime for this. Jesus had been preparing for the sufferings that he would endure and the cross that he would bear for a lifetime. He didn't just show up to the most intensive, oppressive, demonically inspired, satanically empowered moment of his life and just hope for the best. He didn't just kind of luck out. Wow, man, I just, I just got by there. No. He had spent a lifetime developing the proper mindset. Because he knew what was ahead. And he said, I just can't show up to this moment and hope that I can make it. I've got to prepare myself mentally. I have to have the right mindset so that it will become the natural way of life. So that when I'm there, it just goes like clockwork. Jesus had spent a lifetime developing that. And we know it. Luke chapter 2 verse 40. I love this verse. And it gets so little attention. It says, and the child. It's capitalized here in the New King James. Because it's speaking of Christ. This is Christ. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. Spirit there is talking about the mind. He grew strong in his mindset. He was filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. So even as a young man, Jesus was fully aware that the grace of God had been given to him and empowering him so that he became strong in spirit, he became strong in his mind, determined to do the will of God, and it filled him with wisdom in knowing how to respond to every challenge in life. It's amazing. We forget, yes, he was 100% God, but he was 100% man. And Jesus grew. And as he passed through his childhood and his early adolescence, as he passed through his teenage years and he even became a young man, he continued to set his mind on one thing, how may I please the Lord? And as he did that consistently, he, destro- he actually developed a strong mindset so that he exercised his mind to how I might please the Lord and wisdom developed as well. To the point that we are told in Luke chapter 2, I think it is, that, that Jesus, at 12 years old, was in the temple. 
And as mom and dad had lost track of him, mom and dad loosely, obviously, but Mary and Joseph, they came to the temple, they see Jesus there, and he is talking with these religious leaders, and they're all astonished at the command of the Old Testament that this 12-year-old boy had. Yes, there was a special grace upon him, but make no mistake about it, this was a young man that at a very young age said, I'm going to live for the glory of Almighty God, and developed a mind that by the time he was 12, he was stunning the religious leaders of his day. I'm going to tell you, if there was ever a verse in the Bible that justified children's ministry, it is that verse right there. Come on, can I hear a better amen? Can I... Can I just park there for a moment? Recently, I got a, 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 a journal. Now, I journal anyway. But I bought a journal for a specific reason. And that is I just felt like I needed a place to vent any vision, any dreams, as wild as they might be on paper. Because some of the dreams would scare some of you. Just things that I think. And I just wanted to write them down. And one of the entries that I made this week was I am dreaming of a church that takes children's ministry seriously. And that we do not see it as a glorified baby service. That we don't just stick our kids on the other side so that we don't have to listen to them and that we can enjoy our worship experience. Because sitting on the other side of that building is the next generation. And we have been complaining for too long about what's on the scene right now. But it's because we were lazy in actually raising kids to be men of God. And I'm praying that some of you, men and women, old and young, married, single, I don't care, would just say, you know what? What God has entrusted to our lives, young men and young women, I'm going to be their, I'm going to be their brother, I'm going to be their sister, I'm going to be their mentor, I'm going to do whatever I can to pour into their lives because I want the next generation to have a mind of God, to have the wisdom of God and the grace of God to change their world in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for that this morning? There'll be a sign-up after church for those getting involved in children's ministry. Put your money where your clapping is, okay? I need you. Jesus set his mind on pleasing the Lord. He was mindful of the heart of God. And honoring the name of the Lord so that when he finally came to the cross, for the joy of pleasing the Father, he endured it. And all the shame that came with it, we are told wasn't accidental that he made it. He made it because he had the mind for it. You know, from time to time in counseling, I hear people say, it's not working for me. Pastor Kurt, I'm doing everything you told me to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm studying. I, I'm serving. I'm forgiving. I'm giving. I'm doing it all. It's not working for me. Somebody said that to me recently. And I, I wasn't challenging them in a snide way. I wasn't doing that at all. I, I just said, I said, let's talk about that a minute. When you say it's not working, what does that mean? I said, again, I'm not challenging. I just, I just want, you to, I, I want you to tell me what you're thinking. When you say it's not working, what is it's? Well, the faith disciplines. I, I'm, I'm doing all of the right things, but it's not working. I say, okay, well, then what did you have in mind would be the goal? 
Because obviously there's an outcome in your mind that you're using to actually determine the success or the failure of your faith. So what I want to know is, what have you set your mind on as the goal? Because what I'm going to tell you is that more often than not, when I hear people say it's not working for me, it's because they've set their mind on the wrong goal. Jesus didn't tell you that if you did the faith, you'd get the life you wanted. (laughs) He, He just said, you'd do it my way, and you'll get the life I want you to have. We don't like that. No, what about me? What about my happiness? <laughs> I mean, that's how we live. God says, I never told you that this Christ life was going to develop your life. This Christ life will develop Christ in you. Romans 8 Verse 5 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, they set their minds on this temporal world. What feels good? What makes me happy? I don't want any more pain. I don't want any difficulty. I just want happiness. They set their minds on those things. But those who live according to the Spirit, those who are led by the Spirit, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit came for one reason, to glorify Christ and to glorify the Father. To set your mind on the Spirit means that you set your mind on pleasing the Lord, on glorifying the Lord no matter where that takes you. If you're carnally, fleshly minded, it's death, but if you're spiritually minded, it's life and peace. And so, if you're one of those that say, and we all have, I mean, let's be honest, we've all said, it's not working, it's not working, I'm doing... Listen, the reason you feel it's not working is because, whether you want to hear this or not, you've set your mind on selfishness. And, and some of those selfish things are more noble than others. Like, there's nothing wrong with wanting a better marriage, but Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you a better husband or a better wife. Or, or he didn't die on a cross to make your marriage better. He died on the cross so that you might be saved. He rose again so that you might be empowered to be the best husband or wife that God has called you to be. The marriage is left up to Him. People will say that. I want a good marriage. I want to make money. I, I, I'm serving the Lord because I just want happiness and joy. And, and, and God says, you're going to be disappointed. There is one pursuit for the believer. I want to please the Father. I want Him to be honored. And if that is how you've trained your mind to think, then it doesn't matter what happens to you. It doesn't matter who comes against you. It doesn't matter if you go to the bank tomorrow and you find that your financial planner embezzled all of your retirement away. You walk out Maybe not singing zippity-doo-dah, but you walk out just saying, to God be the glory. Because I've learned to be content with much and with little. Because it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the glory of the Lord. For the believer, what carries the day is at the end of that day hearing the Father say, well done. Good, faithful servant. In Jesus' name.
Jesus. I got more, but I don't want to say it. Let's just, just lift your hands. Just worship him right there. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, magnify his name. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The band is not ready for this, so don't even try to do it with me. You can get ready for your song, but I'm dating myself. If you know this old song, would you sing it with me? And just worship him as we sing it. Lift your hands, make it your prayer. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask, all I ask is to be like Him, is to be like Him all through life's journey. All through life's journey, from earth to glory, from earth.